Last week when we were together, we talked a little bit at the beginning of the service or in the service about our church's vision statement, which we changed a few years back, and we we gave it to you last week. The vision statement says, uh, for far too long, the church has been known for what it's against. We want to be known for what we're for. We are for Cedar Lake. Now, when I, we talked about that already, so without belaboring it too long, I want to simply say that when we say the word church at the beginning of that statement, we're kind of referring to the, the broader church, like the universal church concept, so to speak. Like church is everywhere, the, the whole church. The church universally sometimes gets a bad reputation. Think about this with me. It gets a bad reputation because of some indiv- many individual churches that are misbehaving and giving it a negative reputation, Right? Kind of like every profession out there, bad people can spoil the whole profession to people who, you know, you know, and, and, and some bad, some, some churches along the way who were misaligned or for known for what they're against more than what they're for. Well, they've kind of colored the landscape of what the whole church looks like because of some individual churches, plenty of them. Likewise, step, a step further, likewise, individual churches sometimes get painted into a negative light because of what the people of the church, the leaders of the church or the attenders of the church, how they behave in their community and on, you know, in their dealings with others and online, they've given a negative impression and they're part of that church. And so because of the people who will go to that church or lead the church, attend the church, because of the people of the church gives that church a reputation. And churches get reputations like that that give the whole church. And so for far too long, the church universally has been known, unfortunately, for what it's against. But we at Lighthouse, we want to be known for what we're for. And we are for our community because God is, we are for people because God is for people. And that's what we want to be about. We saw last week where Jesus said in John chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. But he also said in Matthew chapter 5, he said, you are the light of the world. That's not a contradiction or nothing to be confused by. In fact, at length last Sunday, we talked about with other verses also how that we're kind of like the sun and the moon in our solar system. Like our planet we live on, when it's turned the right direction, it's facing is facing the sun, and the sun lights up our whole, well, right now, even with clouds, it lights up our whole, our whole landscape. But when, our, when we rotate the other direction and we're facing the other way, we're in the dark of the sun because we're not facing it. And it's when we're turned, when we're rotated the other way and we're in the dark, that if the moon is positioned well, it gives us light. If the moon is in a spot where it's catching the full light of the sun and angled in such a way as to shine the full reflection like a full moon into our dark night, it can actually give some pretty good light in our darkness if it's in the right space. And that's awesome. And what we said about that is this. We said that, that when it comes to that idea, that analogy, spiritually speaking, as we read those verses we just read, spiritually speaking, we understand that we are called to be the moon. We're called to be the moon, that we're called to be a people that when anyone finds themselves away from God or turned away because of, of hurts that they legitimately have been hurt by or just, just don't know or, or used to care or whatever, maybe just, just a, any of us, in, in, in faith or not a faith, have found ourselves in the dark, that as people who, who walk in the light of God, we ought to be in such a position that when people find themselves kind of not visibly seeing God in their lives, they can see in us a reflection of God's love that we're so aware of and so walking in that we're actually in a position to reflect it into the lives around us. 
So we're called to be the moon. Now, here's the thing. We don't have our own light. The moon does not have its own light. Isn't that kind of funny? We always call it moonlight. There's really no such thing as moonlight. It's actually sunlight that's reflected off the moon, if you think about it. But um, same with us. We don't have our own light, but we can reflect God's light through our lives into the dark spaces around us. And that's what we're called to do. But we said this also, the problem is sometimes the moon can find itself in the wrong place. Not the wrong place, you know, but just it can find itself, in, instead of it being in a place where it's positioned to where it's catching the light of the sun and positioned to shine on the dark side of the world at that time and, and brighten up the darkness, it can actually find itself coming between the sun and us. And we call that an eclipse, right? And it blocks the light of the sun. And, of course, um, when that happens, we think it's cool because it's very short and it's very rare, but if it always sat there, if, it, if that's where it always was, if we never had sunlight at all, that'd be a bummer, wouldn't it? And, and uh, we're called to be the moon spiritually, and, and we could be in a spot where we are in God's light and shining his light in a dark world, or we could be in a spot where we are in the way so that people who want to see God's light see us, and we're blocking it with our bad our eclipses. So we're talking about a sermon series called Eclipsed, how we block the light we're called to reflect. And this happens all the time. How can we block the light of God when God's so much bigger? It's the same way the little moon can block the big old sun. The sun's huge. But because the moon is closer to earth, even though it's smaller than the sun, it can block our view of the sun. And sometimes people who, who they're having trouble seeing God in their life or knowing what to think of him, when they see people who name God and claim to follow God, acting the fool, you know, <laughs> acting whatever, we can get in the way and actually be the, be the barricade from someone seeing God because what they see is us and we're giving a very bad view of God's light. We're not reflecting his light. We're reflecting something completely different. We're blocking his light. We're eclipsing it. And we don't want to be guilty of that. So we shared our church's journey last week. Several of you have said to me how much you enjoyed that testimonial, that story. And that was my, our story. But today I want to kind of put it back on all of us more personal. So last week was more fun because it was about me in the past. Now it's going to be about you and us today. It might not be as fun. I'm warning you ahead of time. But today I want to talk about us on the individual end. Because... We've all been given a platform, all of us have been given a platform, thanks to technology, to kind of be more visible. Like it used to be that our opinions and our actions and our whatever was only as visible as the people within the walls of our house or maybe a couple friends or coworkers. But now we can get on, we can get on social media and other things, and now we, people across the world or across people we don't even barely know, all over the place can hear what we have to say and what we're thinking and what we're doing. And we're way more visible. We've been given a platform and a microphone, and, the, and we've been asked what's on our minds, so we have to say, you know. And so because of that, we are visible, and many of us have become the closest thing to church and to Christ that many people have maybe ever looked at or ever will look at. If they're even curious about God, they look at the people who claim to be God people. And that's why we have a chance in those moments to be in a position to reflect his good news and his love, or to be in a position to block that, and be showing something different and eclipsing that. And so there's a lot of directions we can go. I told you my journey, my story last week. Today we're going to talk about one of many areas. And it's going to maybe be uncomfortable for some of us, I guess. But it deserves a week. Don't worry, we'll move on next week. But today I want to talk about our political eclipses. How we let politics, and because we're all political, and American politics. How we can let our politics and our fervor and our passion and our angst literally 
be what we're about so much so that when people look at us to try and see what God looks like, they don't see us reflecting God's message or God's light. They see our politics in the way, and they think, is that what God's all about? And it's not a very attractive look the way we, the way we tone it and the way we act about it. Our political eclipses. And so I want to get into this pretty quickly because I have a lot to put out here today. Um, I want to start by saying this about politics. Both sides are full of problems and hypocrisy. When I say both sides, I'm just referring to the fact that we largely have a two-party system of politics in America. And if you are here today and you are like, well, I'm a third-party person, so burn those two other parties. Um, I mean, you're third party too. I want to be an equal opportunity offender, okay? They're all messed up. They're all people who are trying to get in power, to be in control, to get followers. This is true, by the way, the, the, quick sidetrack. This is true about influencers, social media influencers, TV news anchors and, and personalities and opinion uh, show people. Half of the people you know, if you follow their life, they don't even believe half the stuff they peddle. They just know that it gets, uh, it, it, they know what butters their bread and gets them an audience. It's just how it is. And people want to be in charge. And, and because it's a game for so much, both sides, both sides are full of problems and hypocrisy. Both sides. And all sides in case there's another side. Okay. All right. And it's important to understand because in politics, politics has become a tribalistic world, especially in our country, because we have democracy, so we have the freedom of, of this. Um, it's been a tribalistic war or a game, depends on some people. And, um, and it's all about, you know, we get stuck in our silos and we have our own informational sources, and we don't even understand how anyone cannot see it our way. And we don't even listen outside of our echo chamber. And the only time we hear it from the other side is when people on our side show the worst examples of the other side of the aisle. So we can say, oh, do you see how horrible they are? They're all that way. And that's why we have to be the way we are. And we just double, it confirms our, how we are. And, and we're just, it's just, a, it's crazy. And it's a, it's a, it's just a, it's a zero-sum game in politics. Zero-sum game means for us to win, everyone has to lose. The other side, I can't give them a point of credit because a point means they might win, and if they win, I lose, so we have, they have to lose so I can win. And, and so it is, it's cutthroat, and it's just the way it works. We know this. And because of it, both sides get hypocritical and are full of confirmation bias. Everything that happens is confirmation bias that we're right. And the other side is hypocritical. I, it always makes me laugh when I know people on all political angles who use the same couple stories to prove the other side is hypocritical based upon those two things. And the other side uses the same exact two things to prove the other side is hypocritical based upon those two things. And no one sees that they're hypocritical. It's the other people that are hypocritical because we have our lane in our silo, in our tribe, in our echo chamber, and we just, and we have to win. And that's just the way it works. You say, man, that sounds depressing. Well, that's just politics. My gripe is not with politics today. My gripe is with Jesus followers partaking in unethical outlooks and political behaviors. You say, but Arlen, that's how you have to be. We've got to make a difference in this world, and you've got to, that's how we make a difference? Well, yeah, and, and you've got to fight dirty. You've got to fight like the world, you know. You, to, be, to win in the world, you've got to fight like the world. We've got to be that. We've got to get in that, play that game. But I always thought the Bible told us lots of things. Like Jesus told his followers, he said, in the world it's this way, but amongst, amongst you it won't be like that. Or Paul in, in Romans said, don't be conformed to this world. But apparently when it comes to this lane, we think, well, you just gotta, you gotta be uh, dirty and dishonest and hypocritical and, and, and have double, all that stuff in order to win. 
But the problem is, is in doing so as Christians, and again, my gripe is with Jesus followers, we have sold out our messaging, our messaging of Jesus, of the cross of Christ, of the love of God. We've sold out our messaging for political affiliation. And eventually, in doing so, we end up compromising our integrity too. We always do. Because at some point, you've got to compromise your integrity. For, for, for example, um, I think it, you know, politics kind of ramped up years ago during the years when the late 70s when the moral majority became a thing. And, um, and that didn't last more than 10 years as an organization because the religious leaders in charge of it ended up falling into sin and scandal and the whole thing kind of dried up. But it kind of launched the religious right, which kind of politicized uh, the evangelical church on one political party. And of course, as time went on and it proved that that wasn't so, that wasn't so, it wasn't as good and clear cut as it looked because of the hypocrisies and the double standards and the, and the wrong started showing on that side, you saw the religious left arise. And now you have a lot of Christians and churches who are in one side or the other, and they're all about their politics and they use it to talk about it, they, they leverage it, they speak about it. Uh, there are issues on stage, they do it on social media, they're just angry and, and it's a game. It's, it's, we got to win because they got to lose. And the problem in doing so along the way is that it has produced a lot of carnal Christianity. It's told people that to be a Jesus follower, you, just, you don't have to try to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. You just got to vote the way we want you to vote and you're all good. It's dumbed down Christianity and it's dra- drawn in carnal Christianity because you could be politically right. That's all that matters. And, and I don't know that how much faith is involved anymore. And so, and then it's full of double standards. So for example, here's what both major parties do. And don't, again, third party people don't feel left out because you too. But uh, both parties are really good at pointing at the people, the candidates for Congress or president or whatever, on the other side of the aisle, who they feel are immoral, who have lack business ethics and integrity, and they'll say they lack integrity, they lack business ethics, and they, lack, they are sexually immoral and have been. And therefore, we should not support them. And the Jesus crowd on either side of the aisle was to point to the other side of the aisle and say, we can't support them because of those reasons, because we need people of integrity, and ethics, and honesty, and business, and, and sexual behavior. But then, when, but then when that side now has a candidate that they want who is unethical in business and lacks integrity and has been sexually immoral and has a bad history, sometimes even worse than the other sides. Well, they're like, oh, well, that's different because we're electing a president, not a pastor. And, you know, I mean, uh, Jesus uses, God uses imperfect people. David wasn't perfect. And I'm like, wait a minute. Where was that logic when the other side was bad? How come that's a one-way street, you know? And their person's bad, we shouldn't have bad people. Our side's bad, well, God uses imperfect people. Because it's not about anyone's behavior. I, I learned a long time ago, we're not really about what we say is biblical. We're basically about using the Bible, manipulating it to win because we're more about winning our political campaigns than actually being fair and honest in our standards. And both sides are full of double standards and hypocrisy all the way down the line. I've seen so many Christians who, who once stood on this ground completely stay in the opposite spot when it was politically expedient to their goals because they're a team. And again, that's how the world is. That's how the world is. But I would expect Jesus followers to be different. We, sometimes we're like third grade children. I'm going to get to some scripture, so hang with me. We're like third grade children. You know when our, our kids are little? And they're like, they started it. We're like, well, it doesn't matter who started it. You're supposed to do your part right. But we're running around saying, but, but, but Arlen, we got to be this way in politics because they do it, the other team does it, so we got to do it on our team. They started it, you know, like 
I thought we weren't supposed to be conformed to this world. I thought, I thought we were supposed to, I thought we don't tell our kids that. But we've just kind of compromised our values along the way. And so, what happens is this. When winning becomes more important than what's right, well, we've already lost. When winning becomes more important than what's right, and we got to just twist it to make ourselves feel right, we've lost already. We've lost something already. And I understand a lot of us have a fighter that exists in us. We want a cause to stand for and to fight for. I get that. I understand that. But here's the thing. I suggest, as Jesus followers, we already have a cause to stand for. And it's a better cause. It's an eternal cause. It's a bigger picture. And that if, we're, if we're people of faith, that is. Sometimes I want to ask, are we people of faith, really? Are we really people of faith, or do we use faith as this thing to make us feel good about the God section, and then to bring it along as a strong man to clobber our people who we disagree with and get our way in our ideologies and our lifestyle? And God's conveniently a tool. Or are we people of faith that dictates how we behave? Which is it? I don't know sometimes. Um, because I think both the religious right and the religious left call people to be single-issue voters. And this side of the aisle, this is the one issue, no matter how bad we are and everything else, if you're a really a, you should vote because of this, or the other side, this one important issue, everyone's got those. And they, they're so sure. But here's the problem. When you start saying things like, I don't know how you can call yourself a Christian and vote for such and such party. I don't know how you can call yourself a Christian and vote for such and such a candidate. I'm always like, what is Christianity to us? So I want to kind of say it again. I said both sides earlier. Let me kind of make it more pointed. Your side. Your side is full of problems and hypocrisy. Don't look across the aisle like, yeah, who is that now? Your side, my side, your side is full of problems and hypocrisy and double standards and misbehavior and bad ideas and, uh, and corruption. That's just how it is. But that's not the problem. The problem is that we have a side, that you have a side. I'm not, I don't mean we shouldn't vote. We, should, we live in a democracy. As long as we do, we should vote. We should be informed and we should listen to the issues on all sides and, and make sure that we're not just picking a team and, and be, being blind. But we should listen and, and, and talk to people we don't understand and don't understand us and, and, and get our ducks in a row and make informed decisions and vote accordingly. But when we're all about a team in the political lane, we're all about a side, we'll compromise our integrity at some point. We always do. And we'll justify it in the name of God. We always do. And the problem is, is that it gives a big eclipse to people who need to see what God is truly all about. We shouldn't have a side. We should be on the side of truth. In fact, that being on God's side ought to make us kind of nomads a little bit. We should be all over the place sometimes when it comes to how we do things in, in politics as far as personally. But anyhow, that's another story. So I'm going to get to the Bible here because I, I cut so much out of what I wanted to say because we'd be here for two hours, I, I promise you. This is like a deep well. So I cut most of it out. So, so let me just do this for a minute instead. Um, I cut, the guys later, my, my team who helps me build our sermon series was like, you cut all the mean stuff out. I'm like, I know, but I have no time for it. It's just, I don't have no time for it all. So here's the thing. Um, let's look at some scripture, but I want to say this before we get into the scripture. Um, First of all, I'd like to ask you if, if, if what I'm going to say today, what I've said already or what I'm about to say, if you're like, boy, that kind of that gets to my heart. I feel, I feel spoken to. I, that's good. 
write these scriptures down and take them home and, and chew on them. And if you're sitting here today and you're like, I don't like what, what, what you're saying, and it bothers, it bristles, write these scriptures down. I'm giving you some homework today. I'm going to read a lot of verses to you. Take them home with you. Please take them home with you and think about them beyond this service. And you say, well, well, why? Because they're about how Jesus and the early church handled the political culture of their day. And just in case you think, well, it was different back then. I agree with the argument sometimes that it was different 2,000 years ago than it is today. But can I give you a thought real quick here? It was worse. You say, what do you mean it was worse? Did, did, did Jesus and the disciples, did their vote not really count? They didn't even get a vote. There was no democracy. There was autocracies and dictatorships and Caesars. In fact, Jesus and his disciples, they lived in Israel, which at the time was a nation that was one of many nations under the control of the Roman Empire. Think about this. Their nation, amongst other nations, were ruled by an outside. How would we like to be ruled completely by an outside nation? And they, as a nation of Israel, had very little say so. Rome appointed the leaders that led them. They had, they had outsiders in their country leading, and they had country, leaders within their country agreeable with Rome in charge of things. But there was a growing nationalism that wanted to get Rome out. Can you imagine? They had to pay taxes and tribute money to Rome to help empower Rome's army to keep in charge of them. How frustrating would that be? It was a, not a political good scene. In fact, the, the church, in, not the church, the religious people of Jesus' day, you should know this, the religious people of Jesus' day had been kind of like American Christians today. They kind of got so far of mixing their politics with their faith that it was hard to tell when the, the faith stopped and the politics started. And being a God follower in, in the leadership of, of Israel when Jesus came around, well, they were so political, they were ignoring their own countrymen who needed to know God loved them and missing that message, completely disconnected from that, but worried about their nationalism and getting their country back. And it was so that way that when Jesus showed up, he didn't play the game. He just kind of went about something bigger. And they hated him for it. And you ought to see some of the things that Jesus did. There's so many good examples. One time as Jesus was teaching the people, healing people, feeding people, telling them, teaching them about God. At one point, some of these religious leaders who were very politically enraptured came along to him and said to him, uh, hey, uh, we want to find out where you stand. So they actually kind of buttered him up. It's in Matthew 22. We'll go there momentarily. They buttered him up, and they're like, oh, hey, listen, uh, you're the best. You're a great teacher. Look at those cool miracles. And you're obviously from God. And they set him up with this question, Matthew twenty two seventeen. They said, now tell us, Jesus, tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, don't miss the wording. Is it right in other words, is it right or is it wrong to pay taxes? Because if we pay taxes to Caesar, we're empowering our oppressors to stay here. And shouldn't we be getting, uh, do something about that? So, so is, it, is it wrong or is it right? What's, what, which lane are you in? And, and they're trying to trap him. Jesus says in verse number 18, but Jesus knew their evil motives. You hypocrites, he said. By the way, that's what happens politics will make hypocrites out of us all if it becomes too big. It just does. It can't help it. You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Here, he says, here, show me the coin used for the tax. When they handed him a Roman coin, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Well, Caesar's. They replied, well then, he said, Give to Caesar what belongs to, what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And when he answered that way, it's interesting. They all got silent, shrugged their shoulders and left. They didn't know what to say. 
Because what he, basically what he was saying is this. Look, you're worried about the, the economy of the world around you, but that's the world you live in. You're playing in that sandbox. It's got its own monetary system and its own expectations and its own leaders. You gotta operate in that sandbox. Just give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. God wants something different from you. You're so absent to what God wants from you because you're so caught up about what you should or should not do for Caesar. I'm saying live within the sandbox you're in. Do what you gotta do. Pay what you gotta pay. But give your heart and your attention and your passion to God. You're about the wrong things by being caught up in these things. Later on, Jesus would be arrested by the very religious leaders who opposed him. And I want to say something about that. It's in, in history, it's always amazing how many religious people will be the ones who, will, who, who hurt other people because they think those people are bad and they think they're doing it in the name of God or in the name of righteousness. This happens all the time. And it's not a God thing. It's not a God problem. It's an abuse of God's name. It's taking God's name in vain and using him as a strong man for our own gains. Happens all the time. In Jesus' day, they decided, he, let's get rid of this guy. And they had him arrested, convicted, beaten, and turned over for crucifixion. The Roman governor, Pilate, was interviewing Jesus, and Jesus wouldn't even defend himself. And Pilate's like, don't you know I could kill you? Say something. And Jesus finally spoke up, and he said, in John 18, 36, he said, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. We had to underline that somewhere. My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. It's interesting about Jesus. He never started, he, he, he never, you know, he, he never started a, a well-organized militia. He never, you know, formed an a, you know, anti-government post. He, he never, he, one time his followers said, should we bring swords to where we're going? He goes, well, fine, if you want to bring one. And then when they used it, he's like, put that back. And he helped the person they hurt and said, don't do that again. Never overthrew anybody, never overtook a city, never conquered anything. He simply, he didn't take life, he gave his life. He didn't kill anyone, he died for everyone. He, he's like he saw the world different than people, even people who were religious, thought. You're supposed to see the world that way. In fact, when you look at, and this is not in our notes today, but if you want to, if you want to take something home to study, write down Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, and look at the names of the disciples of Jesus. Because he had people on, it's, it's true, I was going to spend a whole 10 minutes here, but we don't have time. He had, a whole, he had people on both sides of the political aisle in his 12 most inner circle disciples. In, Romans, in Matthew 10. A zealot to kick Rome out and a tax collector, a part of the system that cooperated with Rome. He had both extremes in his disciples, which either meant both sides were welcome in Jesus' discipleship group or both sides had to kind of walk away from that and be a part of something bigger. Either way, he wasn't picking lanes. He was doing something much bigger. And so eventually, they crucified Jesus, and he died. And three days later, he rose again and showed up for a few hundred people of his followers to see him after he rose again. And, you know, I guess he lost, you know, right? He lost because they, they killed him. He lost that battle. Because we can't lose a battle. We can't lose a point in, in politics. And so Jesus lost. Jesus didn't lose. I mean, yeah, they crucified him, and then he rose, and then he left. He didn't do much after that as far as miracles and stuff. But, but you know, he didn't lose because eternity, he won for the big picture of eternity, Arlen. Okay, I agree with you. Does that work for us too? Is it all about winning today's contest and today's election and today's this, or is it about eternity in the big picture? Sometimes you have to do the right thing and lose someplace else to win someplace else. I don't understand why we can't divorce that in our own lives as we see it in the life of Jesus. 
But Jesus was, rose again. He's getting ready to, he appeared to hundreds of his followers. He commissioned them to go spread the news of his death and resurrection. He's getting ready to ascend back into heaven. He's getting ready to leave for good. And as he's getting ready to leave, he's, get, he's on the Mount of Olives with his disciples for one last conversation. What do you suppose they wanted to talk about with Jesus? His disciples are saying, hey, Jesus, before you go for the last time, hey, that was kind of weird that you died and all, but cool that you rose again, thumbs up for that. Now that you got all that weird stuff behind you, we have an important question. So the story picks up in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when the apostles were with him, with Jesus, they kept asking him. Don't miss that word, kept. They kept asking him. They kept asking him. Lord, has the time come for you to, to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He did the other spiritual stuff, but now is the time to, they kept asking, is, is now the time come for you to restore, to free Israel, to restore our kingdom? This is what they were all worried about after he died and rose again. And he's getting ready to leave. And they're just like, you know, you know what they were asking in modern terms? Lord, will you at this time make Israel great again? Lord, will you build back better? I wanted to, Throw both sides of the political aisle on the screen there, so equal opportunity offender here. Um, will, you, will you fix the politics of our nation now? Will you, Lord, will you do what's important now? Will you, will you get this thing straightened up now? Lord, will you? Jesus replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. Or in other words, they're not your concern. That's not what you should be concerned about. It's beyond you anyhow. You know what you should be concerned with, he said, verse 8? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He said, here's what I'm saying to you. I want your focus to be about something so much better than kingdoms that come and go, and kings that come and go, and seasons that come and go. I want you to be eternally focused on spreading the message that God loves people, and he, he sent a Savior, and their sins have been paid for, and God wants them back more than he wants them to pay, and so he paid for them. Spread that message be my witnesses, and, and that be your passion point. Let the Holy Spirit come upon you for that reason and spread the good news. That's what I'm calling you. That was his final words. Realign your focus on eternal things because these other things are just beyond. A, your scope of a, and B, the area of importance for what I've called you to do. There's something bigger at stake, which is true if we're people of faith. Say, okay, Arlen, I think I know what you've been saying here. You've been kind of saying we get politically caught up and then we end up being hypocrites at double standards and we kind of end up justifying bad things and we kind of end up, you know, getting, forgetting that God's message, that God's kingdom is more important than this kingdom and that people know, finding him is more important for their lives than whatever we're worked up on. I get it. I probably shouldn't say some things I say or maybe I should or maybe I think you're wrong. Okay, whatever. But... How, Arlen, how in the world am I supposed to live in a world when, when, when my town or my county or my state or my country is led by people that I don't like or agree with? How am I supposed to cooperate? How am I supposed to exist in these conditions? You know, like Jesus and they all did in way worse conditions than ours. Way worse. Let me say this about, about I, I, this is something I, I think Anthony or Nathan said it between services to me. 
Caesar was the kind of leader over the people that we are afraid our political opponents will become. Not that they are. We're just afraid they could lean the direction of being what Caesar actually was. This is the kind of world that these people lived in when they wrote the Bible for us. And Paul, who was later saved and was later a missionary and planted churches all over the countries around Israel, he began to write letters back to the, country, to the places that he planted churches. One of the letters Paul wrote was to the church at Rome. You know where Rome is, right? Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire, Rome, Italy. Paul writes to the Jesus followers who lived in the epicenter of the whole mess. And here's what Paul said to them in Romans 13 and verse 1. He said, everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from God. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. Now, I want to pause here before I read the rest of his verses in this passage to say this. It's interesting how many of us don't really believe that. We believe it when it's convenient. When, when our team or our guy is in office, well, you don't have to like him. God put him there. And even if they're a hot mess, God put them there. So God's in control. God puts them in people in charge. But when the other side gets their person in position, they cheated. It's, it's, it's not there. This is wrong. God's not apparently in control. God didn't get it. You know what we believe as Christians? That when our team is not winning, that God got bamboozled. That God's like, oh no, man, I was in control until I lost control because they outsmarted me. Either God is in control or he's not. And we can't play the game that when our mess is in charge, that's God no matter how bad it looks. And when their mess is in charge, it's not God no matter how bad it looks because bless God, our way is the only right way. That's not biblical. We either believe the Bible, we believe God is in control, or we don't. All authority comes from God. Those in positions of authority have been placed there by God, and God is still God. Let's go on. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against God, against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right. They will honor you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those to do what is wrong. So you must submit to them not only to avoid punishment, but to also keep a clear conscience. Those verses are hard to swallow. In fact, we probably prefer to hear those in an older translation so it's less clear uh, than that. I would encourage you to take those verses home and just, before you get mad about, yeah, but... Just ask yourself, what are they saying? And, and I want to say this because it reminds me of something years ago. Years ago, I was preaching this way when I saw our churches getting wrapped up in political anger, getting on social media, blasting everybody that we thought was an idiot for not seeing it our way, and just being vitrolistic. And I, I was talking about this very same subject, a little bit about the culture of Jesus' day and the attitude towards authority. And a, a, a woman came up to me and said to me, she would confront me about it. And that's fine. I'm, I'm okay with that, um, obviously. Um, but her, she was a person who was always on social media, always calling everyone stupid fools for not seeing it her way. And so she was so caught up in politics, and she said to me, if we'd have had your attitude, we, we, we would have never fought for the revolution back in the 1700s. We wouldn't have America today. And so many things came to my mind. Before I answer that for you, my first thought was, my first thought was my way. Yeah, my way. I'm a, it's not my way. I just quote in the Bible, number one. Number two, this is not my, my answer, but I once wanted to think about this. I, I, every person in every group 
the people in our country who were loyalists to the British Empire and those who were revolutionaries, and the British soldiers themselves, were all, many of them were God-fearing people who prayed, read their Bibles, and loved God on all sides of the conflict. In the Civil War, people on both sides of the Civil War prayed, read their Bibles, and claimed to love God and, and serve him. It's interesting how, you know, it's like when you pray for your team to win. God was good because my team won. Well, the pagans on the other side must have lost today, huh? I mean, it's interesting how history is written by the winners. But here's the problem. I said to her that day, why is it that Christians, when it's convenient, quit going back to the scriptures and we start going back to the late 1700s? I think you're a couple thousand years off your mark for your marching orders. When we're looking to, to, to early American history instead of early church history, when we're looking at, at a founding father instead of our heavenly father, when we're looking at revolution instead of what the Bible says, let's just call it what it is. You're a political person who uses God when convenient. If, if God's convenient, then I will do it. But if it, if it conflicts, what he says conflicts with what I want to do, I have a better landmark and a better benchmark to draw my intentions from than the scriptures. But the scriptures... And what Jesus did, what Jesus taught, how he behaved, how the early church behaved, if that's who we are, if we're Jesus followers, if we really are people of faith, that should inform our practice. But if our practice is based upon, and, and, and both sides of the political aisle can do this, we can find reasons why we got to fight and have our own version of a civil war today against our countrymen over things that we don't even know what we really think we know sometimes. But Paul wasn't done. In Romans 13 and verse 6. So let's keep reading. Paul wasn't done. He says, pay your taxes too. Eh, Paul. Pay your taxes too for these same reasons. For government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them. And give respect and honor to those who are in authority. That last statement needs to stick with us. Give respect and honor to those who are in authority. You're like, okay, Paul was an idiot, Pastor. I realize that now. Um, give me Peter. Peter was a hothead. Peter was always fighting battles. He was zealous. What does Peter say about politics in those days? Because the politics were bad in those days. What does Peter say? 1 Peter 2, verse 13, he says, For the Lord's sake, if you underline in your, in your Bibles, you ought to underline that first four words. For the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of state or to the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. Verse 15, this verse ought to be, like if you're going to look at these verses later, Please take this one home and meditate on it. This is good for me. This is good for all of us. I need this. We all need this. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. I could go on for 10 minutes about that. That's a great verse. That's deserving of our meditation. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves, so don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone, and love the family of believers, fear God, and respect the king. There's another verse to underline. Respect everyone. We don't do that very well. We get very angry at people who don't, who don't have our ideologies, don't see it our way. We get mad. We get snarky. Look, you say, oh, you're exaggerating. If you think that, then you're, not, you're either not being honest or you're not looking. Since I began to prepare this series, even in the last couple of weeks in preparing this sermon, there's not a day goes by where I don't get somewhere on some kind of a social forum and see people just trashing each other, trashing each other with the most snarky and mean-cutting, arrogant kind of quips and insults over their political dis disagreements. 
And a lot of them, I look at their profiles, Jesus people. And I'm like, oh, respect everyone. This is by, if we're Jesus people, respect everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. And again, the king, we don't have a king. We have elected leaders, governors, mayors, presidents. But again, same concept applies as they said elsewhere. Respect authority, those in positions of authority politically. Respect. I'm going, to pause, I'm going to be as pointed right now as I've been all sermon long. This is the part where I'm going to, I'm going to be very pointed here. And forgive me, if, if, you, if you missed last week, I wish you'd listen to that because I kind of confessed very transparently my own journey. It was easier to beat up on, on me than it was on all of us, including me today. But um, I, I've taken a lot of, of the punch out of this sermon because it, it's a long sermon. But I want to make one thing very, I want to say one thing very pointedly. The last couple of years have grieved me over and over again. I've gone around. I used to take pictures of the houses or snapshots of the screen when people did this, but I stopped doing that because I got too mad and I couldn't do anything about it. I can't tell you how many times I've been at someone's house who has a, on their house or their car or in their property a banner, like a fish sticker that says, I'm a Christian, or a Jesus saves banner, and next to it another banner that says, F Joe Biden. Or on their social media. You know, Jesus says this Bible verse, let's go, Brandon. And in case you think I'm, in case you think I'm just pick, picking on like one side of saying, if someone did that to our governor, our Republican governor, Eric Holcomb, F. Eric Holcomb, and by the way, God is good. You know? And I'm sitting back saying, what are you doing? Where, where that is, there's no Bible for There's no Bible for that. Again, are we people of faith or are we political people who use faith conveniently and horribly misuse it? And give it an ugly, bad name when it's convenient for us. I know, you'll, look, when you, when you say those kind of things, you'll get applause from the people who are, yeah, you'll preach to the choir. And you'll alienate everybody else. And you'll eclipse our main messaging every single time. Where is that talk? Where does that come from? I, I, the church. And by the way, here's the problem. Some of us are like, what's wrong with that? And others of us, well, that's not right, but I'm not quite there, but I kind of chuckle, huh? But here's the problem. That is a mile away from where we ought to be in our dealings as Jesus followers in the world we live in. That's a mile away. It's not a couple degrees away. It's a mile away. But that kind of behavior is fairly normalized amongst people who, in one breath, yo, Jesus, and the next breath, profanely curse down and show disrespect to those we don't like, especially those in leadership positions and anybody else who agrees with them. So let me close with one last passage. I've got to get out of here. It's getting late. Um, We've got to sing still. And um, so 1 Timothy 2, my last passage of Scripture. Write these down and take them home and study them. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Now, this is important. I can't stay here long, but... He's about to tell us how we pray for all people. And in the next verse, he's going to tell us who to pray for this way. So don't miss how we pray for these people. Pray for all people. Here's how. Ask God to help them. Not ask God to hurt them. Not ask God to blast them. Not ask God to fix them. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf. That means pray for them, not pray against them. And give thanks for them. Give thanks for them. I'm not thankful for them. Give thanks for them. Well, who does this apply to? Verse 2. 
Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. I want to ask you a question. When's the last time you gave thanks, prayed for uh, God to bless and lead, and maybe even confess your own, our, our own disrespect, and prayed for somebody you didn't vote for or for somebody you voted against or for somebody that you disagree with or don't like in your town, in your state, in your country? When's the last time we prayed for somebody that we disagree with? Literally, that's what we're supposed to do. You say, that's hard. Does does God want us to do that? Apparently. In fact, he goes on to say this. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Why does that please? Why do we pray for those we would tend to disagree with and hate? Why does that please God our Savior? Listen, are we Christians or not? This pleases God our Savior. Why? Who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth? And what God is saying is this. I want everyone to be saved. I want everyone to know that God loves them. I want everyone to know. Everyone to know the love of God, that God wants them back more than he wants them to pay. So he paid for them, that he's solved the problem. He's going to fix the mess. His arms are open wide. I want them to be saved. I want everyone on all sides, all races of people, all genders, all people uh, on all political sides of all political aisles and ide- all de- ideology. I want people to be saved, everyone. And so God is pleased when we are so busy focusing on what matters and praying for those people who are in authority and giving thanks for God's being in control of it all anyhow, that we can take ourselves out of the toxicity of that culture and be focused on what matters to the heart of God. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. There's only one Savior. Where whoever, if you want to cultishly follow a leader, if you think it's the best thing that ever happened since apple pie, follow the man Jesus Christ. Verse 6. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. I'm done. I got it. Two quick screens and I'm done. I preached this. This is my sixth time preaching this sermon on the stage. Twice in front of a live studio audience. Four times by myself. The first time was an hour and 15 minutes long. And that was after I cut a bunch of material out. I keep shrinking it down because I don't have the time to say everything. Because it's a deep well. Because I'm so deeply saddened and grieved. By how much we have basically at some point along the way kind of our faith ended and our politics started. You couldn't tell that the two were different as, as Christians. And it breaks my heart. And so I, I just want to say this because I feel like I rushed through it all and I talked too fast. I'm sorry. Um, I just want to make, make sure that, I, that three things are on my mind today when it comes to us as Jesus followers with politics. And let me just recap them real fast. This is not on the screen. This is extra. But for my sake, please let me say these three things. Number one, it's sad when our political positions are hypocritical and full of double standards and we're just about a side winning and we compromise our integrity for a political team or for our own ideological outcomes. It's just sad for anybody, but for Jesus followers, it's sad. Number two, when Jesus followers disrespect, disrespect and trash people who are in positions of, of leadership in our country and, 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 and get cheered on by other people who call themselves God followers, it breaks my heart. Because that's not what the Bible tells us at all. 
I know, I know, look, I know the world has taught us to behave that way. Social media has taught us to behave, behave that way. I know that we have, that's the culture that we've developed, and so we've somehow considered that a virtue. But it's not a Christian way to do anything, even though we act that way. It's just not. The Bible's clear. And look, if you don't like that, you can leave here today. I promise you can find somebody out there today who is a, a religious person and a Jesus person who will tell you, no, you're okay and I'm wrong. And, and listen to them and just toss my sermon aside. That's okay. It's not okay, but that's okay. I mean, it's, it's a free country, right? But here's the thing. The Bible's clear on this. And when we disrespect people in positions of authority, the way we talk, and when we disrespect people who are our peers, because they're stupid not to see it our way, and we mock them and degrade them and arrogantly put them down in our anger. That's not respecting anybody. And number three, and here's my big point, it eclipses our more important focal point. It's because we're talking about eclipsed in this series, how we block the light we're called to reflect. When people say, God, I don't, really, I don't know if I even believe in that anymore, or I used to, I never did, or I've heard about it, I don't know. And they look to the people who claim to be the people who, who are spiritually discerned, who know God, and they look at us, and instead of seeing God's light and love reflected off of us, they see these other issues that we're angry and foaming about and arrogant about and snarky about. They see these other things blocking the message that we're supposed to be about. They're like, oh, that's what that's about. No wonder the gospel's spreading like crazy across the world, but it's in decline in the West. And I'll tell you, I think this is why. We married the wrong message. We are called to be the moon. Be the moon. Please, 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 for the sake of other people, no, look, regimes will come and go, leaders will come and go, cycles will come and go, but all of us, all of us today have the opportunity to decide that what people need more than they need a perfect government, and again, vote, do all that you can do, but, but, but what people need is they need to know that there's a God who loves them, who can help them with their marriage problems and their financial problems and their personal uh, mental health crises and everything that's going on in the world, and there's a God who's there for them. And if we're not reflecting his light because we've been known for other things, we've been known for other things, we've let something else eclipse a better message. Be the moon, reflect God's light to the world around us. 